Well, friends, this morning I want to share one more story from our time away. This one is, uh, again, related to the, the Charleston portion of our vacation. And um, we had just finished a delicious lunch at one of our favorite spots in Charleston in the historic district. And um, it was probably about 95 degrees outside and almost 100% humidity. So I thought it was a great time for the family to take a walk around <laughs> downtown Charleston. And, and everybody just loved it in the family and was so agreeable, um, <laughs> except for Jack. Um, but he, he soldiered along. And so we went to a variety of different places and went to some museums and, and took some tours. And so when it was finally, finally time uh, to go back to the hotel, we were, we were on our way. And then I could see in the distance that people were coming in and out of the most famous and historic church in all of Charleston, St. Philip's Anglican Church, founded in 1680. Um, a gorgeous example of Greek revival architecture. And we have gone there so many years, and I've always gone by, and I've just tried to pull open the door to check out their sanctuary, because I've heard such great things about it. It's never been open. But this time, I saw people going in and out, and I'm like, we've got one more stop to make. And if you saw a video of the actual time inside, three people were excited to be there, and one person wasn't. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, they were allowing tours. This was incredible. It is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries that I have ever been in. This church is the oldest church in America south of Virginia. Founded in 1680. Um, beautiful, beautiful box pews from way back in the day with little doors that open and early, you know, probably I would say in the um, maybe in the 1700s, you could like purchase a pew like with your family name and um, the more prominent prominent citizens would do so. It was kind of a place of privilege, you know, which doesn't seem, doesn't feel right today. Like today, though, the place of privilege, people usually choose the back. Um, so if they have their choices in seats. So things have changed a little bit. At any rate, in um, pew number 43, there is a plaque that George Washington sat in that pew in 1791. The place is just dripping with history. There is this gorgeous, fantastic, 15-foot-high pulpit that you have to ascend by a spiral staircase where the minister presides over the congregation and it implies the authority of God's Word. So next week, I'm going to preach from up there. <laughs> thought that would have a good effect. Um, you actually can go up there. Um, so I probably won't do that. Uh, at any rate. And then in the front of the church is a gorgeous stained glass window, very famous, with 12 frames that tells the story of redemption from beginning to end. And on the top and throughout are 12 stars. 
and this gorgeous stained glass window. Why are there 12 stars? There are 12 stars for the 12 tribes of Israel, which is symbolizing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess why they put 12 stars in that beautiful window? It's from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 5. The 12 stars in the picture before us, which symbolizes the people of God. So we have a real privilege this morning to look at the 12th chapter of Revelation. Before we start, just a little background. This is the turning point in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 1 through 11 is, is depicting the time of history between Jesus' ascension and his second coming from like a human perspective, from the perspective of mankind. Revelation 12 through 22, the curtains are pulled back, and now you get to see the perspective of what's going on between the church and the world from the perspective of heaven. You see it from a spiritual warfare perspective. So chapters 1 through 11, you kind of get a perspective from, from the human point of view, 12 through 22, a behind-the-scenes view as to what's going on in the warfare between Satan and his church. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue our series through the book of Revelation, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power 
and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And the dragon, when he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured out, or poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, and he this dragon, he stood on the sand of the sea. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, last week I told you that D.A. Carson had mentioned that Revelation 11 was the most difficult chapter in the book to understand. And I agreed with him until this week. <laughs> I think actually Revelation chapter 12 perhaps is even more difficult to understand and decipher because of all of the, the symbolism and the imagery and the pictures, and there are so many, and there are different sequences, and it can be very hard to keep track of. But remember what we have said before, the, the literary interpretive key to the book of Revelation is understanding that it's the same message communicated over and over and over again. And the book of Revelation was written to the church to prepare her for the opposition that she's going to face between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. Okay? It, it is intended to challenge the church and encourage the church that God's going to win, that we're to trust in him and hope in him, but it's going to be difficult, and there's going to be many challenges, persecutions, and oppositions. And this chapter implies the same. Okay, let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. So, John is seeing this great vision. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. And there's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony 
of giving birth. And as we've said week after week, the Old Testament is the key to understanding Revelation. There is illusion after illusion after illusion to the Old Testament. And that helps us understand what's going on here. So there's a woman mentioned, and she's clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet, and she has 12 stars above her head. Okay, what is that pointing back to? That imagery is taken directly from Genesis 37, okay, where Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, the sun and the moon and the stars represents Israel, the people of God. In Isaiah 66, the Old Testament church is referred to as a woman, okay, referred to as Zion, who is in labor, who gives birth to the nation. So in verses 1 and 2, this woman who is introduced, who's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the stars over her head, she is symbolic. She is a picture of the people of God, the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. That's who is being pictured here, this woman. She's in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Look at verses 3 through 6. Immediately after this, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now we find out later in verse 9 of this same chapter that this great red dragon is none other than the devil, than Satan himself. Notice how he's pictured as this red dragon with seven heads, and on each of the heads is a crown, and above that are ten horns. Okay, all of this imagery is pulled, in a sense, from the Old Testament to have seven heads and seven crowns implies the fullness and power of evil and ferocity. In other words, this being is the fullest picture of evil and malevolence possible. In the Old Testament context, horns were indicative of power and might, and this dragon with seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns, he is the climax, the picture, the embodiment of evil. That's who this is. Look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now this first part of verse 4 has been subject to many discussions, debates, even in our context. The majority opinion in our context is this is an allusion back to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel makes a variety of prophecies. And one of the prophecies that Daniel makes is one concerning Antiochus Epiphanes, who would come in the first century B.C., and he's referred to in the book of Daniel as being like a little horn, so he was very powerful, 
but not as powerful as some others, a little horn would rise up and desecrate the temple of God. And in the process, this little horn would sweep his tail, as it were, would sweep the stars from the sky and trample them. And in the context of the invasion by Antiochus Epiphanes of the temple, about a hundred years before Christ was born, they desecrated the temple and they killed thousands of faithful Jews. And that was synonymous to these stars being swept from heaven. And so what this is saying, it's not saying that Satan, it doesn't chronicle Satan's fall and him sweeping a third of the angels from heaven. It's not chronicling Satan's fall. It's indicative of how powerful Satan is. And with his mighty malevolent tail, he's going to crush and kill many of the people of God. So Satan is going to be persecuting the church of God during this period between Jesus' ascension and the second coming of Jesus. He's very powerful, very ferocious, and he does persecute the people of God. But he concentrates his persecution really more than anyone else on a singular individual. Look with me at the second half of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. So Satan has been persecuting the people of God from when? From the garden. The serpent was there. The deceiver was there, asking Adam and Eve, did God really say this? Did he really say that? He's been persecuting the people of God from the beginning, but he was concentrating his focus on this special person that later Revelation describes as a male child that this woman would give birth to. And that's symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was given birth to by whom? By the church, by the people of God. Jesus' ancestry was directly from the people of God. And so there Satan was focusing his effort on killing the child, on ending the Messiah, and that's expressed from the very beginning. When the Magi came and told Herod that a Messiah, that a Savior had been born, what did Herod try to do? He tried to kill the child, to take the life of the child. So what we're seeing is behind the scenes. What's going on? Who was really behind the scenes, you know, influencing Herod to kill all of those male children in Bethlehem. It was Satan. It was the dragon with seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns, and it was Satan's intent and desire to kill the child. Look at verse 5. She gave birth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, embodied by Mary here. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's directly coming from Psalm 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so the entire ministry of Jesus is summarized in one verse. She gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations, which he certainly does, 
with a rod of iron. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. A description of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What happens after that? And again, this is describing the period of time, you know, in a sense, the full, you know, in one sense, the entire creation, but in particular, the period of time after Jesus' ascension and before his second coming. Verse 6, and the woman, she fled into the wilderness after this child is taken into heaven. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. There it is again, 1260 days. So this is talking about the church in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews indicates that the people of God, we are not in glory land yet. We are in the wilderness, alluding back to when the people of God were in the wilderness for 40 years. They were nourished, they were cared for by manna from heaven, but it was a place of difficulty and temptation, and that was a model, a foreshadowing to the period of time we're now in. The church of God, the people of God, we are in the wilderness, being cared for by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but subject to Satan's attacks, okay? Look with me at verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Remember, Michael is an archangel mentioned in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Verse 8, but he, Satan, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for Satan and his demons in heaven. And the great dragon, who was thrown down, that ancient serpent going all the way back to Genesis 3, who is called the devil, and Satan, he's the accuser and the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now this is fascinating. So when Jesus sent out the 70 as his disciples, to do miracles and preach about the kingdom, and they come back in euphoric joy, and they're describing to Jesus the things that they were able to do. What did Jesus say? He said, I saw Satan, what? Fall like lightning from heaven, which indicates that the kingdom of God with the ministry of Jesus has come in power and effectiveness. In other words, the church would be given a new power that it had never had before. The Holy Spirit was coming in new and fuller ways. Jesus said, what about the strong man? What did he say about the strong man? The strong man, which is another reference to Satan. The strong man has been what, Jesus said? Has been bound. Satan fell like lightning from heaven. The strong man has been bound. In other words, during this time, Satan is not as powerful as he would otherwise be. The church of Jesus Christ is growing in ways that it never has. What happened after Acts 2 and the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost? Where did the gospel grow? All 
over the world. Because Satan was thrown down, that doesn't mean he was finally defeated, but that means his power is restrained while the gospel of Jesus goes throughout the world. Verses 10 and 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now, this is saying the same thing, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What is that an allusion back to in the Old Testament? And Nate mentioned this in the confession of faith, the accuser who accuses the people of God day and night. That's who Jesus is. That's what his name means, our adversary, the accuser, the deceiver. Do you remember a prophetic book in the Old Testament that talks about this? Zechariah chapter 3, there's this vision of Joshua the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. Who is the one interacting in all these visions? The angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua, the high priest of Israel, is standing before the angel of the Lord, and at the right hand of Joshua was the accuser accusing God's people. And Joshua is said to be wearing a kind of clothes, or his, there was a description of Joshua's clothes in Zechariah 3. Can you remember? Dirty clothes, which was indicative of what? Not just his guilt, but the guilt of whom? The entire people of God. In other words, there was a case to be made by the accuser against the people of God. They were guilty. He lives to accuse. And what did the Lord do in that context? He said, the Lord rebuke you. And he said, bring this man new clothes, white clothes, put a turban on his head. In other words, the angel of the Lord was making him clean making him righteous, giving no basis of accusation to the accuser. Nate said it so well. There, there are, well, I'll just speak for me, many times in my own life when I wonder, you know, am I really saved? Because there are times when, when like, out of nowhere, I will feel so unworthy and I will be reminded um, with, with like vivid descriptive imagery of gross and heinous sins that I have committed, things that I have thought, desires I have had, and wondering, could someone like me be saved? Can you relate to that at all? To wondering whether or not you're going to be found worthy on the day of judgment? Is there any way that someone like you or me could be forgiven? When you doubt that, when you wonder that, to the extent that you question that, what we're getting is a behind-the-scenes view. It's not just your insecurities. There is spiritual warfare going on all around us that we can't see. Satan and his minions whispering to you and me, you're not worthy, you're not forgivable, 
the things that you have done, they're in a different category to the things that other people have done. You have no hope on that day. Are you ever in a place where you struggle with guilt? That's a function of the work and the role of the accuser. That's what he lives to do. And there's great irony here in this passage. Look at verse 11. Just prior to that, the accuser accuses them, accuses us day and night. But he doesn't have a basis anymore. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Is this not amazing? The irony of the gospel. Think about how this great red dragon is pictured. Ferocious, powerful, the fullness of evil in every respect. And what did God use to bring him down? A woman and her baby. The Lamb of God who was slain. And it's by his blood that the accuser's accusations have no basis. Like Paul says in Corinthians what? God has chosen what? The weak things of this world. The things that this world thinks are pitiful and foolish and ridiculous and embarrassing. God has chosen to use those things to shame the wise. In other words, the gospel to the world seems ridiculous, superstitious. The world feels sorry for us. But it's actually the most powerful thing in the universe is the blood of the Lamb that washes the church of Jesus Christ clean. Verse 12. Rejoice! Therefore, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. That's kind of typical in this sense of the world. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so that's talking about these days right now, from Jesus' ascension till his second coming. That's what's happening now. Paul calls that whole period of time the last days, this present evil age. Satan knows his days are numbered. And so over and over again, he targets the church. Okay, look with me at verses 13 through 17. Again, it's just repeating the same things that we've seen. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. This has been said before in this passage, but it's repeated. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and half, to, half a time, that's the same as the 1260 days that have just been mentioned. She's going to be nourished, cared for, protected while she's attacked and persecuted. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. That's a very vivid picture of like an invading army, how it just spreads out throughout the countryside, consuming everything that comes in its path. 
That's what Satan's going to try to do. His attacks are spoken of like it's this river, like this flood. Verse 16, but God is sovereign over creation. The earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. God will not let his church be consumed. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious. He's frustrated with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. He never gives up on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. He is standing. He is waiting. He is trying to anticipate and figure out how to attack the church. On the one hand, this is one of the most frightening, sobering passages in the entire Bible. Friends, there is an invisible war going on all around us. I know that doesn't get emphasized a lot in Presbyterian contexts, but it's true. Spiritual warfare and the forces of darkness and God's angels are as real as you and me. And there is this great war going on behind the scenes. Satan is doing everything he can to thwart the kingdom of God. He's doing everything he can to discourage you and me, to raise up opposition against the church and all the nations of the world. We learn so much about this in the book of Daniel, where there are particular demons assigned to particular areas. Like this is from the Bible, not just from like, you know, uh, maybe more uh, flamboyant books that get written. This is true. The Bible talks about this. Okay, when Gabriel was coming to answer Daniel's prayers, Gabriel tells Daniel that he was held up for how long? Three weeks. 21 days by whom? The prince of Persia. And that he would not have been able to come to Daniel if it wasn't for getting relief from the great archangel Michael. God has his heavenly angels that are aiding, helping, ministering to the church. The angels of God are consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The angels are all over, angels of God are all over the Old Testament. The angels of God um, are in the book of Daniel. Um, do you remember in 2 Kings 6, Elisha, the prophet of God, he wakes up one morning, his servant goes out to get the morning paper, and the servant comes back in and says to Elijah, Elisha, we're in real trouble. We're utterly surrounded by the Syrians. Elisha kind of yawns, comes out, and is totally nonplussed. He's not concerned, he's not worried. And he's like, you know, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed, Lord, give him eyes so that he can see. And then what did the servant see? Thousands and thousands of chariots and horsemen and angels of the living God all around Elisha. 
protecting him, guarding him. Just an amazing picture. Angels minister to Jesus after his temptation. They're at the resurrection, the ascension. There was an angel who led Peter out of prison. Peter was so asleep when he woke up, he didn't even know what to do. And the angel said, okay, you need to put on your clothes. You need to follow me. Angels of the living God are in this room right now. I don't want to get, I mean, I'm going to tell you one story. I've, I've, I've wondered whether I should tell you this all week. Um, I really believe there was a time three or four years ago where my life was saved by an angel. I have no other, I don't, I don't talk about this much. I mentioned it to my Sunday school one time, but I was, um, I'm really not a handy guy for those of you who know me. Um, Stephanie can confirm that. Um, when things need to get done, we bring Nate over to the house and, and, they has been very helpful. So before we were going out of town, I wanted to change these lights that are over our garage. And they're, they're situated in a very precarious place. Um, and I wanted to change out the light bulbs to LED lights so that I wouldn't have to change it again for five or six years. And so I get up to change them. And it's really, it's really not wise for me to be doing this. Nate will do this next time. Um, but real, we, you really should have, I don't, you know, someone up there with like a strap or a cord on or something. And what I remember is, and there's just this tiny ledge you're standing on, just this tiny ledge, and there's like a 10-foot drop, and then there's concrete there. And I was changing the light bulbs, and one, I couldn't get out. You know, like when it's, when it's kind of stuck in there, you don't want to squeeze the light too much because it might break in your hand, and it's awkward. And I slipped, and there was no, no room on the ledge, and I slipped. And before I even knew what I was doing, it's like something righted me. And I had goosebumps, and I was like shocked, and I just kind of sat there for a minute and processed. And I was thinking, I mean, so obviously it's possible that it was my adrenaline that kicked in faster than I was even aware and that my body just automatically righted itself. That is certainly possible. All I can say is I, I had the sensation of being completely out of control and it felt like something outside of me just sat me or put me straight up. And I, I will always believe that was an angel of the living God saving what would have been a very bad accident. Whether or not that was an angel, I believe that it was. What this book indicates to us is that spiritual warfare is real. And we should be a people that pray for God's ministering spirits his angels, his mighty angelic warriors to protect his people, to help with the furthering of the gospel, to protect this church, to protect our children, to be with us. We should be a people that pray for the Holy Spirit to subdue the forces of darkness we should be a praying people. This is what's going on behind the scenes 
And our greatest hope is this. The Lord Jesus Christ, one day, he's going to win. He's going to win. He's going to defeat all of his and our enemies. A day is coming when he's going to make all things new, but he uses us. We are the means in our prayers, in our preaching, in our teaching to achieve that great end. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for this behind-the-scenes glimpse into what's going on um, regarding the great war between Christ, His church, and the forces of darkness. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes so that we could see, so that we could recognize, so that we would believe what's really going on behind the scenes in terms of your kingdom. Father, how, how wonderful it would be if, if even now we could see the angels all around this building, the angels in this room, the angels that care and protect and watch over your people. We thank you for their head, for their captain, for the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would guard and protect Providence Presbyterian Church, that your mighty angelic warriors would surround this place. We pray that your mighty angelic warriors would protect your people here. And not only while we're here, while we're out in the world, where we live, work, and play, would the angels of the living God care for us and watch over us and enable us to bear witness to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.